G'day, you're listening to Shaw Walker on Reports, a podcast about creating better public reports. We talk with experts about how to create these documents that explain complex issues to a wide audience. You may be in government, in a non-government organisation or in a business, but if you create public reports, this podcast may be for you. The podcast comes from Australian editorial consulting firm Shawwalker DMS, which helps organisations to make reports better. Let's start this episode of Shawwalker on Reports with something you might find confronting. Here's our guest, Professor Paul Kearney, tackling a tough issue head on. Typically, when you publish a report, you don't get listened to. You're transmitting, he says but your audience is usually, mostly, not receiving. So I would say that most conversations are not meaningful and most intended exchanges of information are ineffective or they don't happen. And what I usually mean by that is that I think most people, when they convey information and reports, they're just sending that information out into the world. They're signalling as if you could connect a, you know, your message in a straight line to your audience, you know, direct transmission of information. And I think increasingly people are much more cognizant of the idea that people will only uh, remember and act on or, or really pay attention to the information you give them if it's part of a meaningful exchange of information or you have some kind of non-trivial relationship with that person. They know you or they have some other reason to think of you as an authority, someone to be listened to and, and to invest the time. I think otherwise you're just sort of sending information out into a, a vacuum. So when do we just send information out into a vacuum? And how can we achieve more than that? Those are the big questions of this podcast – and Professor Kearney has answers, indeed some of the best answers I've heard anywhere. Professor Kearney is in fact the source of what I have dubbed Kearney's Law of Reports. But before we get to Kearney's Law, who is Paul Kearney? As you may just have deduced from his accent, he's a Scottish academic. He works at the University of Stirling but he also works with UK policymakers and he's actually written reports for government. I primarily uh, conduct and teach research, uh, you know, largely at postgraduate level. And I suppose my way into this kind of field was, you know, through the study of policymaking, which, which is useful, but also picking up on the concerns of people outside of policy studies about the, you know, the kind of weak connection between their research and policy. So there seemed to be a space there to translate policy studies insights into uh, how people could understand the use of evidence and, and policy making and, and adapt to suit. I've also, you know, throughout that time, I've been involved in you know, regular sort of academic practitioner exchanges, you know, either giving talks or being part of workshops. And I've done things like uh, you know, short courses on civil service training, and I and I have written the occasional report, f you know, for audiences in policymaking. You've worked with a bunch of practitioners in the policy field, and you've done this work yourself. Can you give me a very high level overview of what you think people get right and wrong when they're 
creating public reports? I don't want to do researchers down too much, but I th- you know the kind of caricature of a researcher is they ask their own research question, they produce their own research, and then at the end they think about uh, who else would be interested in this, and they do some recommendations. Whereas I think the art to writing policy reports is you start from the other direction. What what who is my either my client or my audience? What are their beliefs or interests? What will catch their attention? What are their expectations? And how can I tailor what I do to fit with what they are doing? And I think it's just a kind of simple shift in mindset towards what people think they are doing. And a lot of that is about giving up control. You know, I think researchers, particularly in my field, you know, like to be in control of the research, whereas this is about really you know giving up that control and, and trying to serve some different purpose. Then I think the usual... Other advice is about um, you know, things like uh, you know, plain English or plain speaking, uh, you know, brevity. Don't write a thousand pages. And, or if you're going to write a thousand pages, at least provide one page that they'll actually read. And you know, focus on what people have the capacity to do rather than what you would like them to do. And I think the classic trade-off there is between wanting to look comprehensive you know, I have covered everything and I know all this stuff and here, here, here it all is. And what you can make memorable, which is the opposite of comprehensive, it's, uh, it's the smallest number of things that you can provide them to give them a proper sense of what's going on because you know that they'll only pay attention to a small amount or they'll only remember a small amount of what you've told them. That is a very strong strand in the work of yours that I've read. And... It's a really quite striking theme, partly because it's so uncommon to be telling people that most people are not very interested in most of what you have to say is something people seem reluctant to do. I say it with a smile on my face, usually. I don't think it should be such a hard sell if people just reflect on how they process information or what they pay attention to because I think the basic point is there's an almost infinite or overwhelming amount of information out there and we only have a finite ability to pay attention to it and and process the information so of course we're making all sorts of choices and we're having to ignore almost everything almost all the time to to be able to function you know to make choices so I I think it's probably just a hard sell because you know if, if you do research or you you know, you're looking to provide advice. The inclination, or you know, the incentive, quite rightly, is to produce a comprehensive, thorough report. Uh, you know, because policy problems and policy making is complex and hard to understand. But um, at the same time, people only have this ability to understand small parts of it. They'll interpret it in different ways. So it it shouldn't be such a hard sell. I think it shouldn't be so unusual. Hearing Paul Kearney say this, and hearing him say it this bluntly, was a bit of a revelatory moment for me. Everyone has to ignore almost all information almost all of the time. I've decided this really deserves to be called Kearney's Law. Now, Kearney argues that it's been around a long time. He thinks of it as a variant of the economist Herbert Simon's 1957 idea of what's called bounded rationality. But I think Kenny's being modest. I think that's just me translating the most 
common insight in policy studies. So in, in my field, usually the phrase we use is bounded rationality. And the comparator is this idea of comprehensive rationality, which is we ascribe in people, including policymakers, the ability to process all information, make consistent choices, rank them in order of preference, and know exactly what will happen when they make choices. And so instead, I think the person most associated with that, or who came up with that phrase, is Herbert Simon, who talked about what actually happens when you ascribe in people human abilities or organizational abilities where they, they can only process a small amount of information. And I think that's just people in my field for decades have just tried to use that basic insight and ask, what do people actually do with that problem? You know, how do they combine cognition and emotion uh, to make choices quickly? And how do they decide what, to, what or who to pay attention to and, and who to ignore? These are some of the toughest and most important questions we face in creating reports. How can policymakers make choices quickly? How do they choose what to pay attention to? Kearney notes that in this time-pressured environment with limited information, policymakers usually do not take up new ideas straight away. So, policymakers don't immediately select most of the ideas they're offered. And over time, Kearney says, most of the people who make a case to policymakers for a particular course of action come to accept this. There's a gap between what you'd like to happen and what will actually happen right now. Indeed, you might call this Jagger's Law. You can't always get what you want. Now you can't always get what you want. I do regularly speak with people who work in government or with government. And now this isn't, this isn't a uniform experience, but it's, it's typical. You have people who have certain expectations before they go in and they're high expectations based on what they require from policymaking. They need things to change, you know, because there are a huge number of policy problems that exhibit crises and inequalities and such like. So they need things to happen they have evidence or they think they have evidence on how to solve it. So they go into government or with government thinking, okay, this process should work this way uh, to get what I want. But then whenever I've given a talk or spoken with people who have experience, we actually use the same language. You know, they, they either talk about this gap between their expectations and what happens, or they talk in a different language about how you really have to come up with ways of working to be pragmatic within these systems, knowing that you can't just get what you want and that you're going to be in it for the long haul. And people might pay attention to your evidence at some time, but you're not really in control of that. So I, th I think if people are experienced in, in processes, they come up with a diff you know, different way to say that, that thing and they would give similar advice. I think the only people who don't think that way are, you know, people who... I wouldn't quite say idealists, but they, they have certain expectations from, about policymaking that is not tethered to experience or reality. So why is it that people so often can't get what they want out of policymakers? Why is there such a gap between what the people who contribute to reports want to happen and what policymakers end up doing? Why do the people who write reports so often feel that they remain unheard? 
it's funny. So I gave a talk recently, and the feedback was, you know, I was describing a a dysfunctional system or a chaotic system or something like that. Or this is the impression that, that some people have of policymaking, that it's, you know, no one's in control and that sort of thing. Or you talk about, you know, the incompetence of politicians or their, that they're bad actors or something like that. And I, th- and I think what I try and do is separate out two things. One is what, what uh, are you experiencing that relates to specific individuals who are not acting in a proper manner, you know, according to your expectations, and what are the things that you have to expect regardless of the person you're you're speaking to or in charge? You know, so, so I would say some of them are individual, but a lot of them are systemic, you know, and so it's the systemic type of factors that I talk about. And I think the most useful, or at least the most frequent engagement I have with that topic is I'm often asked to, you know, give this talk about, you know, the question is along the lines of why do people ignore my evidence or why do they ignore the evidence or the best evidence? And I think just going through very briefly three answers to that question, you know, would give my sort of position on that sort of systemic thing. You know, because the first answer is that we don't actually agree on what the evidence is or what is the best evidence and how to gather it. You have different people in different fields who often have very fixed ideas about what is good evidence in relation to the methods they use. But those ideas are not shared across the profession, and they're certainly not shared within policymaking. So I think the classic example is some people think that the gold standard is the randomized control trial or the systematic review of those trials. Some people in policymaking either have not heard of RCTs, or they have no real experience of them, and they, they, they don't give many priority at all. In fact, they would often give much more attention to qualitative evidence or, you know, kind of basic statistics in a spreadsheet or that sort of thing. So there's just this basic lack of agreement on what the evidence is. And I think once you accept that, then the question doesn't make sense anymore. You know, why do people ignore the evidence? Well, if you can't establish what the evidence is, or you don't recognize that the evidence is contested, you know, the, the question doesn't make any sense. The second answer is what we've talked about already, which is, you know, uh, just given the context they face, they have to ignore almost everything almost all the time. And so they're, they're trying to find ways to prioritize some information at the expense of the rest. And I think the best advice is to try and work out how people think so that you can work out how they prioritize information and fit in. But the third one is the thing I study most, which is policymakers are, are not in control of the policy systems in which they operate. So I think the classic reference point, particularly in Westminster systems, is this idea of a, a really simple policy cycle where there are clear stages and you can anticipate the use of evidence. So first, produce evidence to determine the size and urgency and scale of the, the problem then produce evidence to come up with solutions that will work, then choose the best one, and then uh, use evidence to evaluate. Now, I think if, if the policymaking worked like that, you could be disappointed at the lack of uh, connection between research evidence and policy because there's a clear process that everyone's involved in. But I think as soon as you give up on that idea and you accept that policymaking is, is spread much more over you know, many different venues, and there's no simple process that connects everyone, then I think you give up on the idea that there ever could be this direct 
connection between the evidence you present in a report and your audience doing something about it. So, here's where Paul Canney has taken us so far. Policymakers have to ignore almost everything, almost all of the time, just to be able to make decisions quickly. That's Canney's law. And so when you've written a report, policymakers won't usually give you the decisions you want, or at least not right away. That's Jagger's law. You can't always get what you want. And so most people end up thinking that the policy-making process is dysfunctional and maybe that politicians are just incompetent. And Kearney's response to all of this is that you might want to adjust your expectations. The evidence for a particular course is usually highly contested and policymakers can't weigh up all of the evidence with perfect rationality and there's rarely any neat, straight-line process that produces the ideal result. Kearney bases this thinking on the work of a political scientist named John Kingdon, who has, full disclosure, heavily influenced my own thinking about policymaking. Kingdon is famous for an approach called the multiple streams approach, and Kearney often emphasises Kingdon's work. I'll link in the show notes to a paper he co-wrote on Kingdon's approach. In that paper, Kearney and his co-author argue that policy contributors should remember these four principles. First, in the policy process, attention is scarce. Remember Kearney's law. Second, many different elements and voices influence decisions. Third, the decision-making is often fluid and often non-rational. And fourth, luck plays a bigger role than you might think. So, what should we do with all this? How should we react to these policy-making constraints? Kearney argues that policy contributors should prepare themselves for those moments when a window of policy opportunity opens. People need to show patience. Those moments can take years to arrive. But when some new problem or crisis does appear, smart contributors to policy should have solutions to policy problems and crises worked out and ready to go. Often they should already have those ideas in circulation in the policy world. Here Kenny talks about John Kingdon's work. So I reckon when I look at studies of the use of policy studies in other fields, so say health, public health, that sort of thing, Multiple Streams and Kingdon, I think, is by far the most popular. I think because it gives you this hopeful message. If you can act like a policy entrepreneur, if you can invest your time to maximise the impact of your solution, you can make a disproportionate difference. And that is about working out that, you know, how to exploit a window of opportunity. You know, People will pay disproportionately high attention to an issue for a short amount of time, so you have to have this solution available that you can attach to a problem and hope that they have the motive and opportunity to act. And that can all happen in this notional window of opportunity. Now, I think the tricky thing is how to convey how that relates to policy studies rather than you know individual psychology. Because I reckon when people think of a window of opportunity, they think of something akin to an individual exchange. Now, I think what Kingdon is really talking about is this window of opportunity in a really complex, competitive, huge political system in which you are waiting for this, you know, the, the correct conditions to arise. But he talks about 
the amount of time you might have to wait can be anything from tomorrow to 10 or 20 years. I think there, there are those two things. You know, this a timing, of course, is important. But that timing is only, to, to some extent, in your control. His other metaphor is that these entrepreneurs think of them as surfers waiting for a, the big wave rather than being in control of the, the water or the sea. You know, so I think there is a good double message there. One is about, you know, trying to understand a political system enough that you can act effectively in it. But the other is to accept that you may be waiting a, a remarkably long uh, amount of time for this thing to arise. It's, it's not going to be, you know, you'd be lucky if it's tomorrow and it might be that you're talking about a career for the kind of change you're looking for. I confess, I have my own favourite example of waiting a long time for a policy opportunity. This example comes from the 2008 global financial crisis, which is still widely regarded as a high point for Australian economic policy makers. The Australian Treasury is the national government's economic policy making body and it came to the crisis still remembering a bad policy call from 15 years earlier. At the start of the 1990s, it had delivered a lot of stimulus in reaction to Australia's 1990 and 91 recession. And not that unusually, the Treasury had delivered it slowly, so that much of it arrived in 1993 or even later, when the economy was already booming again. What happened next, according to the version I heard during the crisis, was that Treasury had taken this 1990s failure to heart, and decided it needed to do better in the next economic downturn. And so a senior economic bureaucrat named David Tune sat down with a few colleagues and wrote a report about what to do in the next big slowdown. According to the version I heard, that report lived in a bottom drawer in David Tune's desk, literally or perhaps figuratively, for well over a decade. And then in September 2008, when the global financial crisis hit, Treasury pulled it out. It had a pretty simple set of recommendations, recommendations that got actually transformed into a single policy phrase. The 1990s experience had taught Treasury that at the start of a slowdown, the government needed to use fiscal policy to quickly pump a lot of money into the economy's household sector. They distilled that idea into a six-word imperative. Go hard, go early, go households. They took that message straight to the Treasurer and to the Prime Minister. Go hard, go early, go households. And that message, delivered with real conviction, actually lodged in the minds of the people who would have to execute it quickly. Politicians who weren't career economic experts. It was adopted and policy transformed within just a few weeks. That sort of speed is hard to get from government, but they got it. And Australia, almost uniquely among developed nations, didn't go into recession in that period. So, while I'm cautious about declaring government policy successful, it may be that this was indeed a success. And if it was a success, it succeeded because Treasury had it ready when the need arose, and because Treasury communicated it clearly. Go hard, go early, go households.
we shouldn't finish this podcast without a closer look at Paul Kearney's public policy textbooks and his accompanying blog posts. They're not just interesting, they also put some of Kearney's ideas into action by presenting his ideas in multiple forms. You can buy the full version in print, and listeners to this podcast may well want to. But Kearney's website also has pages explaining his ideas at less length for a different type of reader. Links to both Kearney's books and to his blog are on the podcast website at shawwalker.net. Here's Paul Kearney again. The thing that got most attention outside of students and colleagues is the book called The Politics of Evidence-Based Policymaking. So that, that wasn't a textbook, that was just a short book that I wrote in 2016 and, and prompted all these talks. Um, the, the more recent book I've written is called The Politics of Policy Analysis. The difference with that one is I wrote that as a series of blog posts first and then I wrote the book. That was the first time I've done it like that. So what I thought is, you know, that two, two audiences idea. One audience will just read the website with the, the, the posts and a few podcasts. Another audience will read the book. Okay, so, so that's probably a, you know, the best example of a particular format. And similarly, the book that I've written that I'm most pleased with, that I'm actually proud of, <laughs> because, you know, because you're always a, bit, a little bit um, dissatisfied with what you've written. But the, the one I, I'm happiest with is called Understanding Public Policy in its second edition. And again, both editions come with a series of a thousand word or 500 word blog posts that explain the same stuff in a shorter and more concise way. So again, you've got a choice. Do you want to read it in 500 words to get the idea or do you want to follow up with, with a chapter and you know a few podcasts? So I would say if people are looking for a general introduction to the kind of policy concepts of talking about, you know, like a bounded rationality or, or complex systems, then it would be the thousand word blog posts that are attached to the book that's called Understanding Public Policy. Paul, thank you for that. Reading the website and then talking to you has been tremendously interesting. And um, I'm a newcomer to a field that you've obviously been operating in for a long time. And I'm sure there are other practitioners out there who uh, are very good at what they do in this field too. But in terms of clearly transmitting the ideas, something which I appreciate more and more as I go on in life, you're just very good and it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, great. I invited Paul Kearney to talk about his ideas in part for this reason. He represents, at least to me, the evolving frontier of thinking about communicating public policy. He's taking forward pragmatic ideas about the building of policy, ideas that spring from the work of earlier thinkers like John Kingdon. At the same time, he's advancing the way practitioners think about communicating public policy including the use of public reports. And in line with his thinking, he maintains a terrific website at paulcanny.wordpress.com or just Google Paul Canny. Just make sure you spell that surname right, 
it's Kearney, C-A-I-R-N-E-Y. And as usual, links to Paul Kearney's website and other resources to do with this episode are on the website at shorewalker.net. Now, you've found this podcast useful enough, or at least interesting enough, to make it all the way to this sign-off. So, please consider subscribing and giving us a rating in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast software. And if you like what you've heard, you can hire a firm which understands these ideas. I'm David Walker, and I run Australian editorial consulting firm Shawwalker DMS. Shawwalker DMS produced this podcast, and we help organisations to make reports better. You can find more ideas like these at our website, shawwalker.net. And if you need to improve the quality of your reports or other media, contact us through the contact form at shawwalker.net. Take care.